0: I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So lately I've been busy uh, teaching a Dharma class of, of young children from about six to 12 and uh, i started doing this because a friend of mine that i i made at university of the west is a, a vietnamese nun who lives down in i think escondido and at her temple she is in charge of the children's dharma school and with plenty of time off uh, in between semesters she knew that i had some free time in the evenings and said hey how would you love to to teach some of the kids and, and give a maybe a month-long, month-and-a-half-long series of lessons. And so I said yes. And so I've been teaching these children um, all, like I said, between the ages of 6 and 12, uh, Vietnamese-American, and I've been teaching them uh, the Eightfold Path, starting with right view. And so just this last Thursday, we finished our lesson on right speech. And so far, it has been such a delight to see these bright and beautiful children all staring at me on a Zoom screen, because that's how everyone learns these days, and uh, seeing them uh, participate to varying levels of interest, but a surprising number, very, very interested in learning more about the Dharma. And so on one hand, it's, it's uh, a little bitter that it has to be via Zoom because I think it'd be so much to see all their faces in person, face to face, to sit in the same room together and see them smile and smirk and see them think about things as we discuss things. But I will say that one of the benefits of being on Zoom is that it has widened the scope of my friend's Dharma school so that now there are students there all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast. In fact, there's at least one student there who's from New York. And I'm so glad that they're able to participate in something like this. Now in various temples across the world, but I'm gonna focus on the United States, there are a lot of Dharma schools for, for children. But it's one of the few things that I, I haven't... Well, I shouldn't say one of the few, but it's one of the things I haven't seen really catch on in more uh, Western and Americanized temples and meditation centers, uh, focusing on on educating children or even really having a lot of services for children. And I was thinking on why it's so appealing to me, why it's something that interests me so, so deeply. And I think that part of it, for me at least is because i had an interest in buddhism at that same age i was about 11 or 12 when i started learning about buddhism but as a westerner in the united states growing up in a very relaxed catholic family but a catholic family meant that my only access to the dharma the only access to buddhism i had was in the books that i found at libraries and bookstores which meant that i had uh, no guide no one to take me by the hand and show me what was worth learning and what wasn't. That at, the, at that age, around 12, 13, I was just sort of fumbling around, picking up every single book I could on Buddhism with no real sense of discernment. Knowing what was good Buddhism or good Dharma and what was stuff pretending to even be Dharma and what stuff was someone actually coming in with good advice and what was a bunch of nonsense. No real way of telling. But then also, at that young age, some books were just so dense and scholarly for me that I could make no sense of anything they were talking about. Scholars writing on the topics that you find in this scroll and this particular book and this phrase and the permutations and etymology of this and that, it all went way over my head. And so I had a tendency to gravitate towards those books that were pretty much the the nuts and bolts of meditation which meant that for much of my adolescence, so most of my teen years, I really didn't think about Buddhism as anything other than meditation, that it was only meditation. And so now I think back to this class I'm teaching the, to these young children, and they're getting to get the whole picture. They're getting the Eightfold Path. Talk to them, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, and seeing the whole path. And finding ways that they can start practicing it now and making a habit now at that young age. And to me, that's, that's beautiful. That's profound. One might say that I'm even a little envious of them. Man, I wish I was in their seat. That'd be so cool to be seven, eight years old and learning about the Dharma. But importantly, learning about the Dharma, learning about Buddhism as a life path, as a way of life... And I think that that's the big part there, because a lot of what we find, if we don't have a guide or a teacher or a community or a temple, what we find in the books, unfortunately, is uh, Buddhist meditation more as a technique or as a a DIY psychotherapy, uh, which I think puts a a limit and a constraint on the Buddha's Dharma that... um, Leaves people walking away How many people have we heard that say I can't meditate right? And so they just walk away from it Because they, they tried meditation for two weeks Found out their mind was a forest fire And just decided to leave the fire where it was And look the other direction But it's because that's all they had Whatever it is they could find online Or in a book or something that just described a bare bones Empty dry technique In a sort of cut and paste way And they try to apply it and find it doesn't work Because they have no guide there to help them figure out what's worth focusing on and what's not, how to let things move along and when to really examine something and when to apply pressure and when to apply change. That's the only, that's that's one of the benefits of having a guide. That's when you know what's, what's worth doing at, at a given time. But also seeing the entire eightfold path as something truly holistic. And I mean holistic in the The philosophical sense of something altogether being greater than the sum of its parts or otherwise not being able to talk about the part without reference to the whole meaning that you can't just separate one aspect of the eightfold path and act like that's the entirety of the thing you can't focus on just mindfulness and have that be the whole thing you can't only focus on right view and have that be the whole thing but it's it's the sum of its parts in that holistic sense But then also, as it applies to the person Implementing the path Even then it's holistic And that it encompasses the entire body and mind And it encompasses every aspect of life Holistic in that sense Not California, LA holistic Which I think is mostly yoga mats uh, Squeezed orange juice And lavender candles or whatever Right? Not that Not not the self-care sort of Holistic, but Truly holistic A life path, something that Ends up being an aspect, well, not even aspect, being the whole of one's life. I think that that's when we really see the Dharma bloom in in our lives and take on an energy and a momentum that that we don't see if we only focus on one aspect or only look at it as one thing. This this Buddha Dharma, if we only look at at look at it as meditation or only look at it as a kind of uh, calming technique or as a A kind of of psychotherapy that it just soothes the mind and, and relaxes it when it's frazzled and that means that when we approach the Dharma as a holistic life path or a way of life it's something that is with us in in every moment of every day repeatedly it becomes habitual it becomes the way we move in the world so it's not just what we do when we're sitting, it's what we do when we're standing, when we're walking, when we're lying. That's part of why when the Buddha talks about the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishings of mindfulness, there's all these different postures. It's not simply that the, saying that these are four ways of, of meditating, but rather that in any mode of life, whatever it is you're doing, there can be some aspect in the mind that is, in, that is meditating in the sense of examining and watching, and also changing, redirecting. One of the beautiful things about looking at Buddhism as a life path, rather than just a technique, something you do a little bit in the morning, and a little bit in the evening, is that you get to see that there's a bit of fabrication going on at every moment of every time. Fabrication in the sense that we're always creating, constructing, shaping, and molding our reality in our mind all the time. And when you do apply mindfulness, which is something the Buddha did say was useful, of all the different uh, tools we have in the toolbox, the Buddha did say that mindfulness is one of the few that's useful all of the time. Some are useful in one situation, some in, some not. You probably don't want to be in a deep, absorbed state of concentration while you're driving on the freeway. Please don't. You might as well be on your cell phone at that point. With all the good, it'll do you. But something like mindfulness, in terms of applying ardency, alertness, and our memory of the Dharma, and our uh, ability to keep something in mind, that is a quality that we can take with us in whatever we do. That that builds the foundation of our ability to implement stuff like right thought, right action, right speech, the rest of the path. We see the way it's all interconnected, holistic in that sense, something that we can carry through. In every moment Thinking of it this way Reminds me of uh, Another friend of mine He's, uh, he's a monk that uh, Likes to, to share some memes He finds on Instagram Every once in a while And it's all in good fun But he, he had a comparison between uh, A meditator, let's say In the Buddha's time Or even a few centuries ago And uh, a meditator today and so the the meditator of the past says you know i've I've been meditating four hours today, and now I'm going to go uh, work in the in the rice paddy fields for an extra fourteen right and that's also still meditation and then the modern meditator, well, I meditate for about twenty minutes in the morning, twenty minutes in the evening, and call it a day right and my takeaway from that is 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 to not uh be condescending or or mean or." or anything to the person who only has about 20 minutes or so a day for actual formal sitting. My takeaway is thinking that just because you only have that 20 minutes to sit in formal meditation, that's the only meditation you can do throughout the day. Or the only time the Dharma can be alive in your day. Rather than seeing all the ways that it can be there if we make room for it, if, if we change our lives enough to accommodate it. And I do think that that's a part of seeing the dharma as a way of life is that the dharma all of the teachings of the buddha but also all of the techniques and tools all the applications that we learn all the skills that we're cultivating to become more skillful those are the very things that become part of our life and then over time become our life and that means that our life changes and i do honestly believe that many people come to buddhism hoping that their life changes but I think it's easy for many of us to assume that that change change happens in a very alchemical magical way you basically live your life the same way for 23 hours but for that one hour that you've broken up into the morning and evening you do something a little different and that's going to change everything Uh, which i think puts a a lot of pressure on on meditation that uh, might be undue and unfair not to say that meditation isn't transformative Uh, If any of you have been to at least just even two or three of my talks, you've probably heard of me talk about meditation as so important to the Buddhist path that the rest of the path are considered the supports of meditation. That when the Buddha was teaching his disciples, his monks and lay people, he really was emphasizing the importance of meditation, concentration especially, and the idea of of jhana and seclusion and all these things. That if you read it in the, in the Pali Sutras, you, you can't help but come across it again and again. But that isn't to mean that there isn't something going on the rest of the time outside of formal sitting. But that formal sitting that we do becomes the, the impetus, becomes the, the way in which we can we can start carrying ourselves through the rest of the day. If, if we are able to, to get off the cushion and continue that mental state through our actions, through our tasks through the day, there is something different than, that happens compared to say the, the usual mode for many of us, which is we do our, our meditation and then the moment we hear that gong, we hear that bell, we hear the timer on our phone, all of a sudden the, the, all the regular thoughts of the day flood right in. All the regular modes of being flood right in and we go right back to doing the same stuff that we've been doing years and years and years into our lives and then not seeing any progress and, and wondering why. The reason why I focus on concentration and jhana is, and why I point out how the Buddha teaches it as a, a pleasant abiding here and now is because it, it gives that, that strong foundation. When, when the mind is at ease and, and peaceful, and when, it's, when the storm has settled and the water starts to be nice and flat on the horizon, from that point, that's when we're able to really see a lot of the other stuff coming up in the mind. That's when we're able to see the greed and the aversion and the delusion. That's how we see it work, because in a frenzied mind, in our usual busy mode of being, all that stuff, we're just too caught up in it. We're too close to it, and we're too in it. We've already done the claiming of me and mine. We've already selfed ourselves into the situation. But being able to use meditation as a point to sit and watch, and then from that watching, being able to do something about it, applying skillful right effort, right the four mental states, trying to subdue any negative thoughts that already have arisen, trying to stop negative thoughts from arising, or rather unskillful thoughts. And then doing the same for skillful thoughts, cultivating, nurturing the skillful thoughts that are already there, but then also trying to, cre- to create the foundations, the, enrich the soil so that more skillful thoughts proliferate in the mind. That's the kind of thing that we can do once we've actually used meditation as the basis for the rest of our day. And to feed that loop, it, it creates a cycle, a feedback loop in which... Our meditation can flavor and infuse our day with the Dharma as we focus on right thought as we focus on right speech on right action right livelihood and everything else but then the very doing of those things feeds into the meditation and one way of looking at it is seeing sila actually coming first before the meditation that we have to start making changes in our lives before we're likely to see more results in our meditation Otherwise, we might hit a plateau. We might get to a point where where it stops if we only focus on the meditative side. If we're only meditating and expecting our day-to-day actions to change, they might, and they will. I've even seen it happen to myself where that's happened. But then there comes a point where it stops. And then what we need to do is look at which aspect of the Eightfold Path needs to be really nurtured. Is it sila? Is it samadhi? Is it panya? Panya in the sense of discernment, our ability to... Look at a situation and understand and and tweeze out what is skillful and unskillful. When we look at those, we we can see which one needs more attention right now to keep the wheel turning, this Dharma wheel turning. And there are many times when we do have to focus more on meditation and on stillness and return to seclusion, secluding the senses, secluding the mind, creating a pleasant abiding here and now but also plenty of times when we have to look at our lives and see what it is we're doing with our time, with our energy, our interactions with others, how we entertain ourselves, which really comes down to how we're feeding the brain, how we're feeding the mind. You know, I was talking to these young students about that on, on Thursday, hopefully in language that they could understand, but there was this sense of like, well, you and the world as young people, how are you approaching social media that even at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten, you already have access to? How do you apply skillful speech there, and not only in terms of of what you say, but also what you hear, what you take in? You know, and I had these these kids nine, ten admitting, well, yeah, I do a lot of do use a lot of curse words at school around my friends, but like not at home with my parents, and you know, not in this situation, but yeah, and. Well, and, and also, like, what kind of stuff are you, are you watching? Like, what kind of movies, TV shows, you know? Are you watching stuff with a lot of violence and things like that? And the reason why I bring that up is that after a while, as, as your senses get more attuned to what's going on in the mind, you get to see how the mind is impacted by things, right? You, you see how the things that you used to like, they affect the brain differently, and then you start liking them less. Or if you really do actually pay attention, you realize there's not much to like. And so I I brought up the, the violent movies and this one kid says, Well, my grandma and I like to watch uh, like gangster movies together and like, oh man <laughs> That's pretty severe. And he's like, Well does that mean I, I need to stop watching them? And you know, I, I had to look at this kid and, and say, Well, you know, I I can't just say, Hey, no, you, you gotta you gotta stop watching that stuff. Can't watch it at all in, in this weird moralistic way. But I did tell him well, you might want to start watching other things, maybe reading other things, read a book or something like that, that are more wholesome, that are more conducive to, to good skillful mental states, like good thoughts is the way I said it to him, and see how that makes you feel. And we do this all the time uh, in, our, in our own lives without realizing that's what we're doing. like. You know, as a lot of us get older, we start having stomach issues with stuff we didn't have before, you know, acid reflux and all these things start happening. So used to love having having super acidic black coffee in the morning, every morning, no problem. You'd drink cups of it. You'd have seven, eight cups in a day, right? And then after a while, that coffee doesn't sit in the stomach the right way anymore. It sours the stomach. You start feeling nauseous, sick. You feel all the acid reflux. And then even even still, even though the evidence is right in front of you that you probably need to stop with the coffee, you go, well, maybe it isn't the coffee. You know, I'm going to try giving up the milk first. Maybe I'm putting too much sugar in the coffee. Maybe it's because of the tea I'm drinking later in the day. I'm going to stop drinking the tea. And you, you, you start trying to sh- troubleshoot your life, ignoring the y- ignoring the fact you know it's the coffee. You know that's what's going on. And after enough time, you go, well, okay, time time to stop doing something that's clearly hurting me, that, that is making me unwell and then you cast it aside and uh i've i've done this with with more serious things too just in terms of of entertainment you know uh for for a long time i was i was a big uh martial arts fan so i used to watch a lot of action movies and it was one of the ways i used to bond with my my father because he loved all the all the 80s action flicks and so I'd end up watching watching them right along with him, like Universal Soldier, anything with Arnold Schwarzenegger too, throw that in there as well, you know, and all the stuff, Rambo and everything. And then from there, it just, it just uh, took on a life of its own, just watching more and more crazy action flicks and, and getting caught up in, in other stuff too. And scary movies was a huge thing for me too. I loved scary movies, loved to be scared. I would watch Freddy Krueger and all that, all that other stuff, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the 13th, all that stuff. And then it got to a point where all that stuff didn't scare me anymore, because it all seemed like like fantasy. All this stuff and the action movies weren't action enough. I needed more action, and so you can see the the patterns start changing in the brain. The way the way it starts needing more and more of that thing. Do you wanna you wanna kind of find more of it? And so to, to shift and to save more of the scary stuff because another example popped in. After a while, the scary movies weren't scary enough because all the witches, ghosts, and goblins weren't weren't doing it for me. So I started listening to podcasts about real-world serial killers, right? Like, ugh. And then you realize that that's how you spend all your day. You're just listening to that stuff, listening to that stuff, listening to that stuff. And then it's just in your head all day. And I'm not saying someone's going to listen to that and go do those things because whoever's going to do that probably would do that without it. But the point is you have those images in your head, which means that when you sit down to meditate, well, guess what images are right there? The story of that guy who did this thing and that thing. The story of that person to this and this. And we see that, that whatever it is we're filling our brain with, that's what we find when we sit. That's what we find when we meditate. And so part of the seclusion that I keep emphasizing is not just the seclusion of finding time to sit, going on a retreat, staying at a monastery, visiting a temple, or even spending a day at home on your cushion. That is also seclusion. In fact, that's a big part of seclusion. But there's also seclusion in the sense of how we live our lives, what we do day to day, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, how we talk to others, how others talk to us, the relationships we maintain. And that's how we start getting that larger sense of the holistic path, the way it's all connected and how everything that we do is also connected. You know, a lot of the time we can get caught up in, in the metaphysics of it all, understand the interconnectedness of all things, We're all the way it all connects. But we, we, we can also just apply this to the body and mind and how they're interconnected and the way what we do throughout our day affects the mind. And the mind is that precious thing that the Buddha reminds us about all the time, the mind and the heart, time and time again saying that this precedes everything. Everything in our direct experience, the fathom long body and mind, right? All of this right here, this is what we're focusing on, the mind and heart, right? And I come back to it again and again for the same reason, because this is what we're trying to protect. This is what we're trying to nurture, hold on to, and care for. And it's in doing so that we actually find the best way to care for others, to extend that to everyone else. I got to teach these kids about, uh, metta, uh, you know, loving kindness, loving friendliness, goodwill, and helping them realize that it's not just something that's outwardly focused, something that we just look out and, and only look at others and how they're doing, but that it always has to start from within, even, even things like goodwill and compassion and sympathetic joy, that those qualities and equanimity as well, that it has to start from within that we got to have those same nurturing kind and loving feelings towards ourselves. And so that brings us back again to the mind. Like do we care for our mind throughout our day, throughout our daily actions? Are we guarding and protecting the mind? Secluding it from from what the world wants to assail it with? And that does require making changes in one's life. You know that that's that's one of the things that I think uh, a lot of us struggle with um, a- any type of, of change that might be seemed as a, as an inconvenience or stops the fun, you know like like uh, I know a, a lot of people uh, within my own age group that that don't want to let go of any semblance of, of youth because for them it's like some kind of way of of giving up. and so. While I'm staying in on a Saturday, and I think I went to bed at 9:30, the rest of them are still out there doing, doing who knows what. Especially in Orange County, because the restrictions are a little different in Orange County, so they might be up to all sorts of stuff, right? But there are there are all these these um, pressures and and desires and and we want to say yes to all of it. We you know I've I've come across many people in my exploration of different religious paths who have a tendency to, to want to have the cake and eat it too, as it were. You know, they, they want the, the sacred and profane and some kind of weird twisted sandwich. And, and there's this, this impetus to not want to change their lives. And then you're caught in this weird state of limbo because you want your life to change. You just don't want to change to make your life change. But that's precisely what the whole path is about. If you, look, if you lay out the whole eightfold path, the whole thing is about changing, right? Changing the way you understand, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you live, applying effort, mindfulness, and concentration to affect the mind and change the mind the way it thinks, changing the habitual patterns in relation to craving, and in relation to clinging, and in relation to aversion and delusion, all of that. The whole path is change, but it requires real action. There's no passively relaxing our way to the goal. There's no just one technique that we apply in the morning and the evening like it's body lotion. right? It takes real effort. But that effort is worthwhile. And that effort over time becomes one's fun, one's entertainment, especially as it builds momentum, as you see the changes coming more easily over time. It's much easier to give up on the things that felt like you couldn't let go of before, because you realize that by letting go of that, you make room for something better. One of my teachers uh, says uh, that this is like exchanging candy for gold in terms of its of its worth. Candy is satisfying in the immediate; you pop it in your mouth, it tastes good. You know, maybe it's a Jolly Rancher. Ooh, you know, green apple. But then you compare that to something like gold that has worth not only for oneself but everyone around you too. Everyone recognizes the worth of gold. right? And so that's just an analogy but it's the same idea that as we're focusing on the path we're, we're letting go of things to make room for better things that give us a more stable kind of happiness. And I understand that sometimes it can be, feel weird to talk about happiness in a Buddhist sense because isn't Searching for happiness—part of the problem, isn't that one of the things that everyone else is doing? If you look at the way the the normal worldling is, the way the Buddha would say it, well, all they're doing is is happiness craziness. They're always seeking out happiness. You see the drive to be happy and have experiences and collect experiences. They got to go to this music concert. They have to go to that show. They have to make sure they're they're seen here on their Instagram and so on. All these things they have to they have to do. All the busyness of it, and so we can get the impression that. The Buddhist path is not about, is not about happiness because, like, look at all those people who pretend to be happy. Remember, we're the ones who talk about suffering all the time, so clearly we're not talking about happiness, right? But the truth is we talk about suffering because we recognize that there is a way to be happy. The very first part of the Eightfold Path right view is about the Four Noble Truths and recognizing that their whole promise is not that everything is suffering but that there is suffering and suffering has an end. And that's what we're always striving for, the end of suffering, to open ourselves up to happiness.